Hello, my name is Dr. Paul Wheatley-Price, a medical oncologist and president of Lung Cancer Canada. Welcome to our podcast series called Lung Cancer Voices. In this series of podcasts, I'm interviewing patients, caregivers, healthcare professionals, some of the leading lung cancer researchers in the country, indeed in the world, to highlight important and relevant issues facing those affected by lung cancer. Welcome to this episode of Lung Cancer Voices, where we are going to be tackling the difficult issue of palliative care, but maybe learn about why it can be more encouraging and more useful than we sometimes think with the stigma around the concept of palliative care. And to help us um, get through this discussion, um, I've got uh, two guests, Dr. Sammy Winemaker, who is an associate clinical professor in the Department of Family Medicine Division of Palliative Care at McMaster University. And she is, uh, works as a community palliative care physician. And uh, Dr. Sien um, Xiao, who is a background as a PhD in public health and is uh, an associate professor also at McMaster in the Department of Oncology and the Canadian Research Chair in Palliative Care and Health System Innovation. And between them, they've also got a podcast that you might want to, to uh, look at, which is called The Waiting Room Revolution. Uh, and we're gonna come back to talk about that uh, a bit later on. But firstly, um, well, to both of you, Sammy and, and Cien, welcome to the Lung Cancer Voices podcast. Thank you for having us. We're excited to be here. Yeah, thank you. A pleasure. So, Sammy, I, let me come to you first, uh, Dr. Winemaker. Could you just give us the sort of Coles notes, uh, the 101, what is palliative care? Um, why is it important that cancer patients have a knowledge of what palliative care is? I would be delighted. Um, it's my favorite topic, actually, um, given that I'm a palliative care doctor. Well, palliative care is a philosophy of care. It is a philosophy of care that is peppered into the care journey for anyone who's facing a serious illness. And it should start from the time of diagnosis. And it's basically about balancing hope with the reality and the truth of the illness along the entire illness journey. The old fashioned way of thinking about palliative care is that it's a point in time along the illness journey, usually very, at, very near the end, where suddenly a team says, there's nothing more I can do for you and label a person palliative. Um, and that's very problematic. So we're trying to rebrand palliative care to be more a philosophy or a, an approach to care that is delivered by any nurse or any doctor along the entire illness, using a palliative care specialist as needed along the way. So when you mentioned that this change from a point in time, I'm sorry, there's nothing more we can do for you, your palliative to a philosophy, are you addressing some sort of underlying stigma around palliative care? Yes, definitely. Uh, so palliative care, um, when it is a label, when someone is labeled palliative, it often feels like a slap in the face for patients. It feels um, shocking and um, like a dump sometimes. 
And so uh, people are therefore very scared of the word palliative. It's a loaded word um, that often comes with um, a degree of fear and anxiety. It's often used synonymous with very end of life care. So when people are labeled palliative, it just amplifies all their symptoms and contributes to suffering. So the other big problem with it being overly synonymous with a point in time or a label is that it almost suggests that before that point in time that no one really had to address the needs of the patient from the lens of this illness is um, worsening over time we are entering into different chapters of the illness, one after the other. But if we, if we use it as a label, it gives permit, other teams permission to avoid big conversations, sprinkling in the reality of the fact that this illness is changing over time. And we need to check in at points about the illness, as opposed to getting very busy in the weeds of the illness, the day-to-day -day busyness of the illness, and then waiting until the very late stage to take a bird's eye view and say, you're suddenly palliative. And Sien, from your angle as a researcher, can you describe research, your research or other research that shows, is there an impact of changing this approach from a end of life point in time towards a throughout an illness philosophy? Is, is that just a sort of nice thing for us to feel like we're doing or does it actually make a difference? Yeah, this is a good question. I mean, there's actually been lots of research that has shown that if you palliative care compared to just usual care, it reduces unnecessary hospitalizations, it helps people feel, have better quality of life, they're more satisfied and patients and families have, uh, you know, less symptom burden. And in fact, what we've also, other research has also shown is that early palliative care, when it's introduced at diagnosis or early, not just in the last weeks or months, uh, people have less depression, uh, less anxiety, and even they can live longer. So these, there have been several trials that have shown that. So there is this fear that if we use this word palliative care, people feel like we're giving up, the health system is giving up, your healthcare provider is giving up. But in fact, what the research shows very clearly is people have less depression, less anxiety, better quality of life, better symptom management. And, we, and social science has also shown uh, the families have less uh, uh, grief and you know, complex grief after a person dies, there's more hope and acceptance. It's sort of ironic, Our re uh, what we have found is it increases hope because the hope is grounded in the reality of an illness. It's just that the hope is different and it, the hope evolves as the patient understands where they are. Right. I think uh, one of those studies you were referring to was um, one that I know because I work in lung cancer, but there was an important lung cancer paper, which is more than a decade old now, uh, which was showing the early, early, early palliative care intervention, Dr. Temel. Uh, and yes, people who had that approach actually lived longer. So are you suggesting, either of you jump in with this, are you suggesting that when you take palliative care as a philosophy throughout an illness, because it has those clear benefits that you described, better quality of life, less depression, less grief, 
longer life maybe even that actually it should just be regarded as another component of the treatment in the way that you get a course of chemotherapy and you get a course of palliative care input and you get home care nursing if you need it is it is it really just am i being too simplistic is it just another sort of pathway we should have in parallel uh, my feeling is that it should be an integrated skill set um, into all doctors and nurses and healthcare providers that we do, we dance across these lines and they're arbitrary lines or they're dotted lines where a family doesn't have to feel or know that we're in this lane or that lane, that it is a skill that we infuse into the care that we provide these people. It's really about being woke as a clinician, knowing that, again, illnesses have early, middle, and late and terminal chapters. And a palliative approach is something that we need to integrate into the care without ever scaring someone with a label. It's about appropriate, honest, truthful, uh, realistic care that balances hope and the possibility of things going um, not the way people wanted. It's about being um, eyes wide open. And yes, so to, the, to answer your question, yes, it should just be integrated. So it's hope for the best, but plan for the worst. Is that a fair cliche? Yeah, yep, but we changed it. We, we now say hope for the best and plan for the rest. Because if this is integrated in the earliest parts of the illness, um, you know, we don't want to avoid necessarily the P word or avoid talking about death and dying. But these types of conversations need to be nuanced early in the um, journey. And so different words or language um, needs, needs to be used so that people don't get uh, clam up right from the beginning. So I think hope for the best plan for the rest is a little bit softer, but what we really do mean is hope for the best plan for absolutely every other thing that could happen. Right. And when I think, they plan, sorry, CN, go ahead. No, I was going to say, I think why plan for the rest is important is because people I've talked to lung cancer patients as part of our research and their families, and they when, you know, some have said, you know, they're death positive and they're like, I'm ready. I know, you know, they're quite elderly. They know they don't, you know, live forever. And so they've, they've bought their funeral plot. They planned out their funeral, but they were not prepared for what it would take when they're on third line immunotherapy, who's going to pay for it when the funding ends. It's not, it's starting to not work. I'm getting weaker. What are we going to do with our house? How are we going to get up the stairs? These are things that are part of the illness journey that they were not they were not aware of and not prepared for. So part of palliative care is also planning for, for the life that you're living, not just the death. And so I think this is part of the conversation of the changes in the illness story and the, and the overview, and we call it zoom out as a key of, so that people can understand their illness better. But without that context and that illness understanding, they think that it's just about how to have a good death. And that's not actually, that's, that's just one piece of, a, of, of palliative care. Now, CN, I'm just going to pick up on that. Um, so, um, because I was, I was going to, well, maybe Sammy, either of you, Sammy, you said hope for the best plan for the rest. And I was going to then say, well, what is the planning involved? And CN, you started to really touch on that by saying planning is not about just planning for 
the almost the moment of, of of death and do i want to be in a hospice or in the hospital or at home and have i got a plot picked out but you're you're talking about this planning as being is is much more than that it's and it's not just about that so either of you uh what what are those additional plans and is this is this the same as advanced care planning is the buzzword I use. Is this the same thing? For sure. First, I'll tackle what we mean by planning. Okay. So when we say planning, uh, we mean anticipating that there are going to be twists and turns in your illness journey, and there are going to be ups and downs. And that over time, the illness doesn't stay just chronic and stable that a person at some point will begin to slow down and life around them will change. And anticipating that means that you also anticipate that the people around you are going to have a separate illness journey. So we call it their crew in our podcast that every person hopefully has a crew around them. And the crew is also going through a potentially a caregiving experience, a life altering experience. They also need a roadmap um, to know what to expect, how their life is going to change, how this illness is going to affect them. Because the patient is often the star of the situation, but the family members or the crew are the best supporting actors. And everyone um, benefits from having an overarching roadmap. What's going to be the bus stops along the way of this illness or the decision points or the transition points? These are times when we need to zoom in and zoom out in order to make decisions. So we plan for those things in advance so that those predictable markers don't feel like crises. And so advanced care planning fits in, in a way where people are encouraged to share with their loved ones from the earliest point possible, even ideally before someone is ill, about what's important to them. So for example, my husband knows that I value my independence. And so if in the future he ever needed to make a decision about my health care, he would remember our advanced conversations about my independence being very important so that if he had to make a decision for me, he knows how to make decisions that would be best for me. So advanced care planning is just making sure that your crew knows what's really, really important to you so that in the future, if there was ever a time that they needed to speak for you, that they could help make a decision on your behalf based on what's most important to you. Can you give me some, like some practical examples of, of the, you know, you talked about bus stops and, and, and planning and making decisions and, you know, there's the end of life buying a plot is a practical thing. I mean, is this things like, you know, teaching somebody how to pay the bills. If, if I'm the person who pays the bills and I, my life is coming to an end, I need to teach my wife, you know, where I keep the bills or, you know, where I go to get the tires changed. Is, is it practical things like that? Is it, is it legal issues like power of attorney documents, a will, uh, or are we, am I missing the mark here? So I think it is some of those things, Paul, but I think, and I would say those are, um, 
very technical things. And there is a technical piece about, uh, you know, how you close out one's life. And there's books about that and workbooks. But we took the tact of going sort of a higher level and the opposite, which were these skills that we found people who had a better experience, people who felt more prepared and more hopeful, less overwhelmed, um, we call it in the know, they had these skills. And some of those skills are exactly what we talked about, the ability to walk two roads, hope for the best plan for the rest, the ability to zoom out and understand the big picture of their illness all throughout. So that is because everybody's story is different. And so when we break it down into these milestones, it isn't, it, unfortunately, it isn't predictable. And therefore we're waiting for these points. And that's how we got into uh, you know, the situation in the first place, which palliative care is associated with death and dying. So instead, we're going back to skills that people have, and advanced care planning connects to the idea of customize your order, the idea that we have preferences and goals, and that should be something that is connected to all our decision making, even from first treatment, or whether to have surgery, or whether to go on this trip. These are things we, we, we take for granted when we enter the healthcare system, because we have this loss of control, because you have a, a serious cancer in your lungs or whatever. So um, these are the skills that you can take and use at every milestone, because every every change is a decision point that we don't really know. There's so much uncertainty, and we shouldn't run away and stop thinking and and give up all you know all our decision making when we have uncertainty. We should. This is actually where we need to step in and try to find ways to have more control. And these skills that we talk about help people to do that. Yeah, this is great for lung cancer. CN and Sammy, I'm sure you're aware lung cancer is, causes more cancer deaths than any other cancer by some mm -hmm. distance in Canada. But there is also a lot of hope now, a lot of new treatments, uh, screening coming along, a lot of people living far longer than they, they ever used to. Uh, but it does mean the journey is, is uh, you know, which maybe a few years ago was, was quite dismal, but very predictable in its, how dismal it was, is now more hopeful, but then it brings with it some uncertainties. So CN, you can comment on that? Yeah, I was just going to say, and this is exactly what I think it's really important that we don't uh, avoid the elephant in the room, which is we know palliative care is associated with end of life, death and dying hospice. And the history of that is because, you know, how it started in the UK with the hospice movement, there was a fight to get people to have these skills and it became a specialty. But however, with these advancements and technologies, it is easier and easier to push down this idea of talking about, uh, you know, there's not many more options further down the road. You know, there's always something in the cupboard or, the, you know, there's always a hope of a clinical trial. And, and there is, there is always those things, but it has left us with getting this kind of care very late. And the reality is most people only get palliative care for a couple of weeks, 18 days in Canada, and only half get palliative care. So most people don't even get it at all. And this is true in the US as well. So we, when we're talking about palliative care, it's often very late. And what we are trying to do is have a good experience all throughout the journey for the years and years that people with lung cancer will have all throughout so that they can feel like they have full information if they want, as much information as they want, and not feel in the dark. And I, one of the, the favorite things that we talk about is people often ask like, what's gonna happen to me? Or what does this mean? And doctors will say to them, well, I don't have a crystal ball. And that really shuts down the conversation because there's actually a lot of information that we have. We don't know necessarily, we have population statistics and for you, any one patient, we don't know how much time necessarily to an exact day. 
but we're talking about the roadmap of the kinds of things that one should prepare for and be aware of and decisions that they have to make because it's not just them, it's their family, it's their loved ones, it's everyone connected to them. That's interesting. I, I, I'm, I'm guilty of using that word, I don't, that phrase, I don't have a crystal ball. I, I normally follow up with however, and then try to give information. But Sammy, you mentioned earlier with the philosophy that, you know, from those earliest clinical encounters, it becomes an approach as opposed to a referral down mm -hmm. the road to a palliative care specialist. When you talk about this mindset early on, I guess there's a two-part question here. Firstly, how do you train nurses and physicians to have that mindset? Or do we require, or, or are you getting at, like when someone's diagnosed, they would meet you or a version of you as well as me or a version of me at right at the beginning and you'd have two physicians in your team all along. So do you train me? Or do we work as a dyad right away? And if we work as a dyad, are there enough of you? Are there enough resources for this approach? Good questions. I think actually there were three or four in there, not just oh. two, but <laughs> that's okay. No, really well, let's, let's break it down. The first one is then is how do you train non-palliative care specialists to have that palliative approach? Yeah, so I think we're, we're at a crisis in healthcare education where uh, we need to ensure that this type of training, uh, how to provide a palliative approach is integrated into the formal training of all nurses, all doctors, all healthcare providers. And until it is, then you know we're we're a little bit behind the eight ball. That's when we need to really work side by side once you've graduated because you didn't get the formal training in med school unless you stumbled upon it and happened to have a, a palliative care rotation elective. In the future, what we want is that nurses and doctors get formal training in their formative years. And then when they graduate, they have role models within their own specialty that role model and emulate this type of care that doctors and nurses shouldn't have to in the future go do a rotation with a palliative care specialist to learn um, how to provide palliative care. But right now, uh, that's what we're dealing with. So right now we have as many nurses and doctors um, doing some clinical work side by side, a palliative care specialist, hoping that it'll rub off. And there are formal um, you know, education opportunities for people who have already graduated to learn more about palliative care. But the best way is to infuse it during formal years of education and watch it with good role models who aren't palliative care specialists. So actually a few years ago, I worked with Dr. Jose Pereira, who was, I don't know if you know Jose, who was the mm -hmm. lead of palliative care here in Ottawa. And we developed a program uh, called yeah. Difficult Discussions, Better Decisions to, mm -hmm. to help with these kind of uh, approaches. And actually it's been adopted now. So most of the residents get that framework. Mm -hmm. But it's not mm -hmm. much, I guess it has to really be role modeled. Huh? That's the key. So the second part of this, um, and Sammy, if, if you don't mind, Sienna, I'll just stay with Sammy for this as a more just sort of in the clinic type question. If, okay, let's say I haven't had that training and I'm there in the clinic and or it's, I just don't feel I've got the capability as a clinician to really do that well. Mm -hmm. And I, 
I need some help. Uh, are there enough palliative care specialists to be able to come in uh, right at the point of diagnosis? And we're talking about cancer and I talk about lung cancer, but this could be presumably someone who's got kidney failure or, yeah. or something else. Are, are there enough of you or, or nurse specialists? Mm. Um, well, there's definitely not enough of us to take over all the palliative care needs for every patient with any kind of illness. We don't have enough people to be in the mentoring coaching role. Um, we do need more, but we certainly will never have enough to take over the care. So the other thing is, is most of us in palliative care, I'll be honest with you, have been trained in end of life care. And many of us are having to learn what does a palliative care specialist do in the first and second and third chapters of an illness. It's new business for us as well, but we will be able to extend our reach as palliative care, uh, palliative care specialists much further if we're utilized as consultants and mentors and coaches, rather than the expectation of taking over all the care of everyone who's dying in Canada at any one time. And that's what we're busy doing right now. And that's why we don't have time to move upstream. But if we relinquish that old fashioned role and availed ourselves to people like you, oncologists who could call us anytime as a phone a friend for advice over the phone or to come to the clinic and join you on a joint visit or a joint virtual visit uh, as needed along the entire illness journey, we would have further reach. Right. Cian, you, uh, you want to add into that? Yeah, I was going to say that this is exactly why we created this thing called the waiting room revolution. Because the reality is, and re our research I've done and others have done has shown in Ontario and others, we don't have enough specialists, uh, particularly those that will go into the home and community, like what Sammy does. And even in hospitals, it's not enough. We need to train generalists, people like the, the medical oncologist, the cardiologist, all of those specialties, including family medicine, to do the basics of palliative care, the ABCs of palliative care we talk about, which is information. It isn't complex symptom management. Often you might need a specialist for that, but giving people information, the roadmap, that's something we can train all healthcare providers. But even more so, we can also help patients and families learn how to ask questions, learn how to be advocates for themselves so that they can get a palliative care approach throughout. And that was the whole basis of the name for the waiting room revolution. We realized that we, we have been training uh, and we have a RCT, a randomized control trial right now to educate uh, generalists, primary care physicians on early palliative care. And maybe that will show a, a huge change, but it will take years and years to see a big difference at a system level. So we need patients and families to have be armed with this information so that they can extract a palliative care approach from whomever they meet, even if they get the crystal ball question, they're going to know how to respond and say, I know that you may not predict for me exactly when, but that's not what I'm asking. I would like the big picture of my illness because I know you've treated thousands of patients with lung cancer. And so I'm trying to understand the big picture of my illness so I can get a sense of the kinds of things I can expect, not necessarily the timing, just so I can plan, just so I can make, so I can be at peace, so I can start to prepare with my family about what's important to me, whatever it is. If we can attack or target patients and families as change agents, I think we can turn the tide. This gray tsunami that we're all afraid of can actually be a force for change. 
And underneath them is communities, compassionate community, everyday people who may not be sick, but communities are there for helping it. And we're seeing that in spades with COVID. So maybe my next question is, is the wrong question then. I, I, I was going to ask, you know, at Lung Cancer Canada, we do a lot of advocacy around access and that often that's in the form of we, we, we want access to um, new drugs or new treatments for, for uh, um, lung cancer patients uh, across uh, all provinces and territories, or we're talking about access to thoracic surgery or access to a PET scan or access to modern radiotherapy techniques. And we know, in fact, there's a very interesting report from the Canadian Partnership Against Cancer in November called Lung Cancer and Equity, which really shows there's a lack of equity in lung cancer, particularly in lower socioeconomic groups and rural populations. So I was going to ask, is there an access problem for this? But I'm kind of getting a sense that this, you're telling me that the solution is not access per se, the solution is a cultural shift. That is, is that that's exactly right. I was going to say, look, I think we can advocate for both. Like we should advocate for more access to drugs and shorter wait times. But I think we can, and that costs money and that takes time. That's not, it doesn't mean it's not important to do. I, if I had lung cancer and I know people who do, I would want them to have the best care possible. But that doesn't mean that we can't also have them have good information right from the beginning. And that's free. And that's something that anyone can provide. So I think there are both things happening at the same time. And I think we just, we need to be able to step out of labeling things as, oh, if you get a home care nurse who has specialized training, that's palliative care. But if you're a family physician who does good uh, illness understanding conversations and advanced care planning conversations, that's not palliative care. No, that is, that is also a part of what we're talking about. So I think we, we, we can have two conversations, but I think you need to have both things and, and top down and bottom up and middle out, all of them at the same time. You know, this has been a fascinating discussion, CN and Sammy. I'm really, really appreciative of this. It's really enlightening. I, now, I didn't invite you on the podcast to just to uh, to be a commercial for, for your podcast. However, you do have a podcast, ser a series, and you mentioned the title there, Waiting Room Revolution. Maybe just uh, before we before we close, could you tell us uh, why why you developed this, why you thought it was important, and what people might hope to to learn from listening to the waiting room revolution um i have met thousands and thousands of people in their home um, sitting by their bedside who have not understood where they're at in their illness journey they don't know what to expect they don't know how things are going to unfold and when we get into this type of discussion where I can help them connect the dots of where they came from, where they're at now in their illness and where they're going, I have often been met with responses like, I can't believe it. Why didn't anyone tell me? You mean the whole entire time someone could have explained that this is the way things might've gone and no one ever told me? and they get so upset and disappointed. And often when I'm called in for a pain crisis or nausea or anxiety or sleepless problems, insomnia, when you unpack it, it's often related to fears 
and the mystery of the illness. And so Sienna and I have spent many, 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 many years trying to educate healthcare professionals to learn a palliative approach. And that's important and it continues, but the needle wasn't moving fast enough. So we decided to take the information uh, that we learn at the very end of an illness at the bedside of thousands of people, the good stories, the bad stories, the ugly, and we have bundled it up uh, then untangled it, reconstructed it, try to bring it upstream so that we are leapfrogging over uh, healthcare providers and offering the patients and families all the opportunity to get the information they need to have a roadmap for any progressive life-limiting illness, including lung cancer. Um, essentially, what CN said is that we are preparing patients to suck out a palliative approach from the healthcare providers who are often uncomfortable and worried about having such realistic conversations with, with patients and families. So the podcast is about hope. It's about um, how to walk your journey with your crew wrapped around you from the time of diagnosis uh, with a high dose of hope, but also invited to know that we as doctors and nurses know a heck of a lot of a heck of a lot more about the future of their illness than we let on, because we're trying to be positive with them. Cien, um, I, I've loved some of the phrases that you've you've uh, that you've used. Um, the crew, hope for the best, plan for the rest, zoom out. Um, how have you um, how have you found the podcast has been has been received and um, where can people find it? Yeah, if thanks. So we the phrases are actually, you know, we spent all this time trying to figure out what was the secret of people who had a better experience versus those who are in the dark and sort of, you know, didn't have such a great experience. And we found that those who had a better experience had seven, you know, practiced these seven keys. And that was our, our season one is really about those keys like walk two roads and zooming out. They can find them at the waitingroomrevolution.com or however you get your podcast. But I feel like so much of what we're talking about might be some of the things that, you know, your listeners and what you're talking about. It is include the idea of hope. And we, we've had really great responses from healthcare professionals as well, who are excited to finally be talking about this. So we designed it for patients and families, and we have their stories as examples of using these keys and what a difference it made. But we are thrilled to be getting emails from palliative care specialists, but also generalists, nurses, family doctors who are saying, I, I want to use this language, teach me how, or I'm so glad we're finally talking about it because I've struggled with what to do when I see these patients and I'm not sure what to say and what to do. So we're trying to invite both sides to the conversation and it's been, and it's been wonderful. And um, yeah, we're just, we're glad to keep going and, and, and meeting people in the community who want to, uh, to be hopeful and prepared, but also, you know, recognize that facing a serious illness is, is sort of a universal experience that uh, either for yourself or for someone that you care about. Great. Well, Dr. Winemaker, Dr. Xiao, thank you so much for your time and um, for those listening, if there are questions that have come up for you from listening to this, then um, please look at the lungcancercanada.ca website. We'll provide their links to the Waiting Room Revolution um, and their, their website and other uh, palliative care uh, resources. 
Um, so thank you. Thank you again, both very much for um, this podcast. Thank you. Yeah, it was fun. Thanks, Paul. Thanks to our producer, Ryan Mullen. Please send us your feedback, like and follow us on Facebook at LungCan, on Twitter at LungCancer underscore can, and on Instagram at LungCancerCanada. For more information about lung cancer or to donate, volunteer or share your story, visit our webpage at lungcancercanada.ca.